views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert, Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky. Hi, everyone. I'm Gene Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Everyday Wealth. We want to send a very special shout out to nurses on today's show. May happens to be Nurses Month. It is a celebration of these angels who work so hard to help people everywhere. According to some new data published by Gallup, in 2023, nurses continue to rank as the most trusted profession. That is a title that they have held for over 20 years, and they continue to demonstrate their commitment to individual patients, to families, to public health as a whole, as the scope of their practice expands and evolves so quickly. 79% of Americans, this is a very high number, 79% of Americans polled said that nurses' honesty and their ethical standards are very high or high. Now, by comparison, only 62% of people said the very same thing of medical doctors, which just highlights the unique positive impact of nurses on all of our lives. And if, like me, you have spent your fair share of time in hospitals, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Registered nurses are also one of the largest segments of the workforce in the United States. They're among the highest paying large occupations. I tell lots of young people, if you don't know what you want to do, and you want to make sure that you are going to be able to earn a living for the rest of your life, be a nurse. Nearly 55% of registered nurses worked in general medical or surgical hospitals. They made an average salary of a little under $78,000 per year, according to recent data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And we are to my point, we are going to need a lot more nurses in the years to come. The federal government projects more than 200,000 new registered nurse positions will be created every single year from 2021 to 2031. All of that said, it's a really difficult time to be a nurse. It is also a really difficult time to be a doctor, nearly two-thirds of this group of people say that they are experiencing a moderate or great deal of burnout at work. That's according to a new poll from Harris and Health Day. Why are things so rough? Well, the pandemic, of course, that is definitely part of it. Before COVID, just for comparison, about 
40%, up to 50% of doctors and nurses respectively reported burnout and distress and anxiety. But today, the numbers are much, much higher. 66% of primary care docs and 75% of nurses say they're burned out because they're understaffed. There are not enough people on the job with them. 58% of docs and 51% of nurses blame it on paperwork. They say all of the administrative drag on them has been a contributing factor. And it is no wonder that the medical industry is witnessing a huge surge in retirement rates among all of these needed healthcare professionals, which has led to a significant decline in the overall number of registered nurses with a drop of over 100,000 leaving the workforce just from 2020 to 2021 alone, which, by the way, that's the most significant drop that we have seen in the past 40 years. So today, as we hope to turn all of these trends around, let's just hear it for the nurses and for the doctors in our lives. If you've got one in your orbit, just reach out to them, give them a call, check in to see how they're doing, send them some flowers, give them a hug. And for the nurses listening today, thank you so much for all that you do. We happen to have gotten a question from a registered nurse, and we want to kick off the show with that. By the way, if you have a question for me and our experts, just go to everydaywealth.com, scroll down to the blue box that says, ask a question, type in your info and send it my way. That's what Becky did. And here is her question. She says, I am a 67-year-old working registered nurse, and I need help. I'm single, never married, an only child, and have no immediate relatives. Can you talk about planning for me and who I should name in wills and powers of attorney, especially a healthcare power of attorney? I cannot make these decisions on my own. Can you please help? Becky, we can absolutely help, and I am going to bring in Erin Smith here in the studio. She is the estate planning expert at Edelman Financial Engines. Welcome back to the show, Erin, and good to see you. Thank you, Jean. I'm delighted to be back. Can you give Becky uh, some guidance on her plans? Yeah, absolutely. Um, First of all, Becky, thank you for everything that you do. You are a registered nurse, and that is not an easy job. Um, especially not an easy job during the pandemic. Um, I would imagine it's also an unappreciated job at certain times. So we really appreciate everything that you do. And thank you for sending in this question. This is a really good question. And you're not alone. Um, you are certainly not the only person who who doesn't have kids, isn't married, doesn't have an extended family, very often doesn't like, they might have an extended family, but they don't really like their extended <laughs> family. <laughs> don't go there. We won't, we won't go there. And, and so this is a situation that I see with our clients fairly often. And they're looking and saying, well, look, I really don't have anyone in my life. You know, who do I want making financial decisions for me? Who do I want making healthcare decisions for me? Who should I have settling out my estate? And those are really broken down into two separate categories. One of these is the financial piece of things. So the idea of who is going to be your attorney, in fact, who's going to be settling out your estate. And one thing to keep in mind is that it doesn't have to be a family member. So if you have a trusted friend, if you have a close friend, that person can certainly be your attorney, in fact. 
And many individuals, they hesitate in naming a friend because they think it's going to be a lot of work. And with proper planning, while it's a lot of responsibility, it may not necessarily be a lot of work. So you are going to have very good estate planning documents because you've listened to Jean's show. <laughs> and you're going to have very important estate planning documents. But you know, all joking aside, you're going to have a durable power of attorney that explains the roles and responsibilities. And remember, too, that your attorney, in fact, they can hire help. So they're going to have a financial planner that they can talk to about investments. They're going to be able to utilize your accountant who's been preparing your income tax returns. You're going to have an attorney that your attorney, in fact, can be consulting with. So while it's re- there's responsibility, there isn't necessarily a lot of work. And remember as well that if you feel kind of bad about asking your friend to do this, they can always be compensated for doing so. And sometimes that might make you feel a little bit better about asking a friend. How much is reasonable to compensate them? Who gets to decide how much that person is compensated? So there's a couple ways to do it. You can certainly set forth a compensation rate inside of your document. The other thing that you can do, um, which is what we would certainly suggest, is have a conversation with your estate planning attorney. So what is deemed reasonable compensation varies from state to state, um, can even vary from city to city. And some states provide it is reasonable compensation and it's up to the attorney to figure that out. And then for other states, it's actually a percentage of assets. We're talking about, at least so far, financial powers of attorney. What about the healthcare side of the equation? And that's where it gets a little bit different with the healthcare. But much like with the durable power of attorney, you don't have to name a family member to make healthcare decisions for you. You, you can name a trusted friend. You can name a member of a community. And also, much like with the durable power of attorney, you're going to have very good planning documents. So you're going to have a very, very clear medical power of attorney, healthcare power of attorney. So again, while it is a role that comes with responsibility, it's really just about following directions. So when you're looking at end-of-life care, you're going to have a very clear medical power of attorney that states what your end-of-life wishes are if you're not able to communicate those. So it's really just a person following directions. And then if it's a situation where it's not an end-of-life situation, but you've become incapacitated and you just need someone to manage your health care, again, a trusted friend or a member of, of a community, while it's a responsible position, it's not necessarily a lot of work because much like with the durable power of attorney, your healthcare representative can hire help. Your healthcare representative can hire that, that care coordinator who those folks are are worth their weight in gold. And so it's really the role and the responsibility of your healthcare representative to manage that care manager or that care coordinator. But your friend or that member of the community isn't going to necessarily be involved in the day-to-day because they're able to hire that out. Such a good point. I, I think that the other thing that is really crucial here is just clear communication. You want to make sure that you're naming somebody who is willing and somewhat happy to do this for you. Absolutely. It always has to be the right fit. And whether that's a family member or whether that is a friend, someone else, it has to be the right fit. Always great guidance, Erin. Thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you, Jean. We will see you again soon. And Becky, thanks to you as well for writing. I hope that that was helpful. And um, please feel free if you've got anything else on your mind to reach out. We are always happy to help. 
So I was explaining earlier how nurses are having hard times in their jobs, and the same, of course, goes for doctors. But it's not just the people working in healthcare who are having a difficult time. It's those of us who need healthcare, because quite frankly, the whole system right now is a bit of a mess. I mean, I don't want to overlook the fact that there are many miracles in modern medicine. We've got a producer on this show who is a cancer survivor, thanks to life-saving medication and technology, and we are so grateful for that. And there are many other examples where the healthcare system works miracles, but boy, oh boy, is it expensive. And one of the biggest risks to your retirement is that unexpected healthcare costs will come your way. In fact, healthcare is one of the top three costs you'll face in retirement, and it is getting pricier every single year, which is why we're devoting this show to healthcare and to helping you plan for it in retirement. To help with that, I want to bring in Isabel Barrow. You all know Isabel, of course. She is one of the brilliant financial planners with Edelman Financial Engines. Always good to see you, Isabel. And I hope people check this out on social media because I love the dress. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jean. Well, it's always good to be here and nice to see you again also. I want to uh, set a little context here. So previously, in prior generations, retirees had access to at least some healthcare benefits, often through a former employer or through a pension plan. Today, very few employers offer this option, and most employees will have to cover the full cost of their healthcare benefits, minus Medicare, of course, mm-hmm. during retirement. And this may be why nearly half of Americans 50 to 64 tell us that they are worried that they won't be able to afford healthcare when they retire. Right. And that's a pretty valid concern. For most people, after housing and transportation, healthcare is going to be their biggest expense. And that's a trend that's likely to continue because healthcare costs continue to go up by two, two and a half times faster than the rest of our inflation. And when we talk about healthcare, we're not even talking about long-term care, right? When we look at the costs of healthcare, the about... Five to six thousand dollars that it will cost people per person once they're retired to pay for things like Medicare premiums and copays and prescription drugs that are not covered. Those costs don't include long-term care. Right. And then comes along long-term care. And and the reality is that you may not be thinking about long-term care, but 70% of us are going to need long-term care. That's, you know, two-thirds of Americans or more are going to need long-term care at some point. And that long-term care is not covered by your standard insurance plan. Another significant factor in this whole equation is that we're just living longer. Today, even though longevity has fallen a little bit because of the pandemic, we know that the average male can expect to live into their early 80s. The average female can expect to live longer than that. And interestingly, when it comes to longevity, the longer you live, the longer you're going to live, which is why we're seeing so many more people hit 90 and 95 and even 100. What does that mean for your clients? 
Well, it means that this gets even more complicated, right? Because now we have to really think about all of the different potential things that could happen and include that into your financial plan. So it means we need to build a financial plan that includes those costs, the potential costs of healthcare and retirement, uh, the potential costs of long-term care, and that we need to plan for that to last longer than it did for your parents and your grandparents' generation. All right, let's talk numbers. Let's just get down to it and put it on the table for everybody. How much is healthcare going to cost during retirement? Give me some averages. <laughs> well, it's not pretty. So if we'll, we'll just start with the national average lifetime retirement healthcare costs for a healthy 65-year-old couple. Okay, so what it's going to cost them over their lifetime from 65 on is $597,000. And that's just the average. So if you are younger, if you're a healthy 45-year-old couple and you're thinking about what healthcare is going to cost you in retirement, well, that might be closer to one and a half million. And that's, of course, due to this, what I referenced earlier, the rapid inflation of healthcare expenses to two and a half times growth of uh, inflation for healthcare expenses. And again, we're just talking about averages, you know. As my mother always says, you are not average. So, <laughs> right. so let's actually talk about the different factors that will impact these costs for your personal economy. What are the factors that can sway the numbers one way or another? Well, obviously, there's a ton of things that can impact that, but probably five variables that will have the most impact. And the first is the type of healthcare plan that you select as a retiree. So generally, the more benefits you're going to receive, the more benefits you select, the higher the cost will be to you. Um, your income, of course, your income in retirement, that can determine the premiums that you'll pay for your Medicare, your Medicare plans, because as we'll talk about, the Medicare is an income-based cost. And generally, the higher your income, the higher your Medicare premiums are going to be. The next is where you live, right? What state do you live in? Because, or what even what city? For example, the annual cost of in-home care in LA is 30% higher than it is in Houston, Texas, for example. A fourth would be laws, changing legislation, right? And how those rules may impact your future costs, including changes to Medicare, right? And then the fifth is your health. How healthy are you, right? Because that's, I mean, we know that's going to be one of the major determining factors as to how much it costs you in retirement is where you're starting. What's your baseline? What's your general health? What's your family history and longevity? Because those will ultimately also play a huge role in determining or estimating for your financial planning what your total health care cost might be. Those are some really tough numbers to swallow, but I know that there are things that we can do to change the picture in our favor. So let's take a short break. Let's catch our breath. When we come back, we're going to talk about your options for healthcare coverage and ways that a financial planner can help reduce those costs. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Are you worried about the current volatility of the market, inflation rates, talk of a recession? 
Are you second guessing your investment decisions? What better time than now to ensure your finances are moving forward than by getting an expert second opinion from an Edelman Financial Engines planner? Whether you already have a planner or simply need a new perspective, they can help you manage your wealth plan to both weather the volatility of the market today and help you protect and preserve it over the long term. To schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today, call 833-PLAN-EFE. That's 833-752-6333. Or visit their website at efewealthplanners.com. Put your uncertainties to rest once and for all. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup right now. Welcome back, everyone, to Everyday Wealth. Thanks for sticking with us. We are talking scary numbers today, healthcare expenses with financial planner Isabel Barrow. It's also Nurses Month. If you are a nurse, if you've got a nurse in your family, if you raised a nurse, we want to express our love and thanks to all the nurses listening today. So earlier in the show, I alluded to the changing nature of healthcare. In in past generations, some employers would step in and cover retiree healthcare. That is just not true today. Without the advantage of a plan subsidized by an employer, the cost of your healthcare insurance in retirement could very quickly become one of your biggest monthly expenses. If you retire before age 65, when most Americans qualify for Medicare, the monthly premium may surprise you. If you're forced to purchase health insurance at age 60, you could be looking at an average cost of more than $1,000 a month. So what do you do? Well, one thing you could do is delay retirement until at least age 65 or explore whether you could find a part-time job that offers at least some health benefits. But if you do have to retire or decide that you want to retire before age 65, there are some options on the table. Isabel, can we talk about what those are? Yeah, there are options. And I'll also say that I think, you know, a major concern for people when they are thinking about early retirement is just how am I going to cover that gap, right? Mm -hmm. It's just, I think a lot of people do plan to stay on even if they have enough money to retire earlier just because they're so nervous about what that healthcare cost is going to look like. So there are options. There are things that you can think about. Um, One option is if it's only a short time between your earlier than 65 retirement date and 65, you may be able to enroll in COBRA, which is the government insurance program. and, And COBRA will cover you for 18 months in the same healthcare plan that you were in while you were working. So there's no re-enrollment, there's no change to your benefits, but downside is it can be really expensive. But you have healthcare coverage, right? There is no gap. So yes, you're paying for it through the nose, but you've got that coverage. Once you elect to register for COBRA, you'll have to pay that full premium yourself so it's no longer subsidized by your company, plus a 2% fee. I do want to just caution people because I, I looked at some numbers recently just for an anecdotal case, and COBRA wasn't as much as this person was afraid that it was going to be. So when you're comparing options, don't wipe COBRA off your list just because you've heard that it's really expensive. Take the time to take a look. Yes. And when I say really expensive, really expensive compared to what you were paying before. Again, because that employer subsidy is no longer available. There's also short-term healthcare insurance. What is that? So this may be an option if you don't have that long to go, again, before you're turning 65, 
but primarily if you're already healthy and you don't require a lot of regular health services or prescriptions because the benefits and the costs vary based on the type of plan that you choose. And But because that coverage is limited, it is usually less expensive. So it's a lesser expensive option, but it's very bare bones. And be warned that short-term healthcare insurance is not guaranteed, meaning you may not get that coverage that you're expecting to get because you have some health history or a pre-existing condition or something that when you go to get that coverage, you didn't know you had. That comes up sometimes too. By the time we're in our 60s, I do not know a lot of people who don't have any pre-existing conditions, right? Life just happens. Right. What about some longer-term options? If you are 62 and you're looking for a way to bridge yourself to Medicare until 65, COBRA is not going to last that long. No. And so the next place you would look would be through your state. So the Affordable Care Act requires every state to have a marketplace, a health insurance marketplace. So what you get through the marketplace is a guaranteed issue healthcare plan, which means you and your family cannot be denied because of a, a pre-existing condition or your medical history. So that is the next line of defense. And there are tiers of plans, right? They're like Olympic medals. There's bronze, there's silver, there's gold. Some areas even have platinum. Right. So you can choose the level of plan that you want. And obviously the premium that you're paying is going to be based on that type of coverage. So each level, right, bronze, silver, gold, or maybe platinum, will offer a different option of premiums and coverage. And in some cases, you may be eligible also, depending on your income, for some cost-sharing reductions, which we also call subsidies for offsetting some of that cost to you. Now, you can enroll in these plans during either the open enrollment period or if you have a qualifying event, like you lose your employer-sponsored healthcare plan because you've retired. Or because you've been retired. I mean, that's the exactly. that's the situation that's really scary to me. We know that in a lot of cases, the, the most recent numbers that I saw were about two-thirds of cases. People are not deciding that they want to retire. They are being retired because they're either being laid off or they've got an illness or they've got a family event. Something is happening. There are some other options, a little more creative, the costs may be lower? Well, so I think if you're married, um, then you want to look at your spouse's plan also if they're covered by an employer group health care plan, because that may be the least expensive option that you have. So you may be able to, again, because of this qualifying event, enroll in your spouse's plan if you weren't already on it. Now, let's assume you and your spouse are both on your plan, you may need to go on, you know, both onto your spouse's plan. So again, this creates a qualifying event. This retirement, this being retired, whatever it is, it creates that quote unquote open enrollment period where now you can get into the other spouse's employer plan um, if they have one available, of course. And that's what we did in my house. I was actually on my husband's coverage for many, many years because he had a great plan at work and he retired and now he's on my plan. Right. And so, you know, seems mm-hmm. fair, right? Yep. I mm-hmm. said, come on along. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about HSAs. Where do they fit into this mix? So an HSA is a health savings account and you, um, it's an employer plan and you can make contributions to it and you can use those funds 
at any time to pay for the qualified medical expenses. So you cannot use your HSA to pay for private insurance, private health insurance premiums with two exceptions. If you're paying those COBRA premiums or if you're paying healthcare premiums um, during a period of time when you're receiving unemployment compensation because you've been retired. (laughs) So, but to qualify for an HSA, you do have to be in a high deductible insurance plan. But overall, these these are a great way to save for future healthcare costs because they offer triple tax-free benefits, which is tax-deductible contributions, tax-free growth, and tax-free withdrawals, as long as you're using that money for qualified medical expenses. The tax-free growth is an interesting wrinkle. So only 6% of people who have HSAs invest the money in their HSAs, right? It's a very underutilized benefit. So if you want to use it as a supplemental retirement account, if you want to actually grow the assets, they're not going to grow by themselves. You have to actively enroll in the investment component and put them to work. But once you've done that, it can be a really great way to save money on healthcare overall. And long-term care premiums. So if you have money left over in your HSA and you haven't used it and you're signing up for a long-term care insurance plan, that may be money that you can use to help offset some of that high cost of those long-term care insurance premiums. Great tip. Okay, I'm going to take a big, deep breath and dive into our next topic, um, Medicare. (laughs) Medicare is so confusing. Yeah. Who knows about Medicare? It's confusing. <laughs> you so know about I, Medicare. I do That's know about Medicare. Um, but, you know, the rules are always changing. The numbers are always changing. It is really, really complicated. And I would hate for you to have to go this alone. So let's talk about Medicare. Medicare is, as we know, a government program, which is designed to help us with those of us who are over age 65 or disabled prior to that, uh, with um, health insurance, regardless of your income, regardless of your health status, regardless of your medical history. So if you are a U.S. citizen who has paid into Social Security long enough to receive benefits, even though you may not be currently receiving them, and you are 65 or older, you qualify for Medicare. And Medicare is basically alphabet soup, right? Most retirees get Part A, and they get it for free, but everyone pays for Part B and Part D if they choose to add it. And then there's Medicare Advantage, which is this bundled combination of A and B and D, and determining which combo platter works for you is, that's where the complexity comes in, and that's where a financial planner working with somebody like you who is a holistic planner, who's willing to take a look at the portions of your life other than your investments can provide you with some guidance. Yeah. And let me just kind of break down the alphabet soup and kind of what those pieces mean. So, and I'll just really oversimplify it because somebody needs to, right? Which is, so A is basically hospitals, right? That's going to cover a portion of your hospital stay. B, that's your regular doctors, you know, your checkups, your regular stuff. Again, a portion of those costs. And D is to simplify it, like that's what we would call your drug plan, prescription drugs. So again, there's a lot more to it than that, but that's sort of how you can remember what those letters mean and tie to. And again, that A is free, B and D are what you're going to pay a premium for. And then there's IRMA, 
which is not the name of your aunt on Medicare. <laughs> it's it's Medicare's income-related monthly adjustment amount. Right, right. I-R-M-A-A, which we financial planners call Irma. And Irma is not, she may be a nice aunt, but she is not <laughs> our friend. Because what Irma is, is an extra fee, essentially, that's tacked on top of your monthly your Medicare Part B premium. So if, you know, your Medicare Part B premium is the amount that you pay for your Medicare B, but depending on your income, you're going to pay IRMA on top of that. So that's like the kicker. And that fee is calculated looking at two years, uh, a two-year look back of your income. Meaning if it's 2023, they're looking at 2021 to determine how much you have to pay for your 2023 Medicare, right? So if you had a big income year in 2021, it's impacting how much IRMA and premium you're going to pay for your current year Medicare because that's what the IRS is showing Medicare that your income was from two years ago. And so this can be a really big issue if, for example, again, I said you had a really big tax year two years ago. Uh, you sold a house or you took a big distribution from your IRA or you are working then and you're not working now. So your income may have changed. Now, just so you know, it may not be a guarantee that you're going to have to pay that IRMA based on the two-year look back because there are some events that may allow you to go and basically ask Medicare for a waiver of that. So there's something called an SSA 44 form. You can pull it up and look at it at medicare.gov. And it tells you some of those areas where, you know, if you're paying IRMA, for example, because you were working two years ago and you are no longer working, you can tell them, hey, I'm not working anymore. My income is lower and they may adjust your premium down because of it. But, you know, for the other things, you may be stuck paying that IRMA for the whole year. And we're not talking a small amount of money. We're not talking small differences in your premiums that are based on this income. At the very low end, Medicare premiums are about $165 a month. At the high end, we're looking at $560 dollars a month. So you just do some quick math in your head or on the back of an envelope. That's three to four thousand dollars a year. Per person. Per person. So right. now if you're a couple because you're you're filing jointly, you know, now you're what, six to eight thousand, right? Yeah. So it's it is a big deal. And since Irma has no phase in period, it's important to know which bracket you're currently in and where that next bracket is going to jump, right? Because if you're one dollar over where the bracket, the cutoff is to be in that Irma um, increase, then you're there for the whole year because of that one dollar. Well, and this is where holistic planning comes in because there are things that you can do in the years leading up to Medicare enrollment, things beyond that that can reduce or eliminate these IRMA fees during the look-back periods. This is where you use tax planning strategies to potentially lower your annual income. It's where you look at, I'm learning so much from you, Isabel, it's where you look at which accounts you're pulling money from in order to actually control the amount of income. I do this all the time. So we sit down, we say, I've got to understand exactly what your income is. I have to understand all the different sources. You know, something that you may think is little, again, if it's one extra dollar and it kicks you over into Irma, then all the careful planning we've done doesn't work. So, you know, we're thinking about strategies to provide an income stream that are not going to cause your Medicare premiums to increase 
increase. And that may be things like instead of taking from your 401k or your traditional IRA, you may be taking money out of taxable accounts. And so that means you have to have taxable accounts. That means after-tax non-IRA or what we also call non-qualified money. So you've got to plan ahead, years ahead, in order to have that money potentially available. You know, brokerage account. Maybe it's a Roth IRA that you're drawing off of for a couple of years, or maybe you're drawing a a little piece off of a Roth IRA and the rest from a traditional IRA or 401k just to kind of keep those numbers in check. And if you're making a big purchase, so, you know, you need to go and, and get access to a big lump sum of money all at once, you really need to consider, is that going to be worth the potential IRMA or, you know, increased Medicare premiums that I might have to pay because of it. And it may mean that you've got to, you may think about dividing it out, that lump sum that you need over a couple of years. You know, if you're buying a new car in December, hey, can you maybe wait and pay half of it in December and half of it in January? Wait until January to buy it and take the money out over two tax years. It's just a really good reminder that if you are close to retirement, anywhere near to retirement, and you need help figuring out your Medicare strategy, because clearly you need a Medicare strategy and how to potentially reduce these monthly costs, you want to pick up the phone and call Edelman Financial Engines and just talk with a planner like Isabel. You know, I wrote a book called Age Proof with a doctor named Mike Roizen, who for many years was the chief of wellness at the Cleveland Clinic. And one of the things that I learned for him is that one of the most impactful things that you can do for your wallet is to just live a healthy lifestyle, right? You get your regular checkups, you get your 10,000 steps, you eat healthy, you go to the dentist on the regular, you follow the orders that the doctor gives you. You're not a non-compliant patient. It is huge. And, you know, for example, a 45-year-old man with high blood pressure can lower his annual health care costs and increase his longevity by just taking the medication as prescribed, exercising regularly, according to another Health View report. And so these small changes could help save an average of more than $3,600 a year in pre-retirement out-of-pocket health care costs. Just little things, taking the medication and going for the walk. Have you ever done the tape measure test? No. So- Dr. Royzen made me do the tape measure test. He says everybody sucks in, so it's okay. But basically, you take you take a tape measure and you wrap it around your waist, and your waist should be less than half your height. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, hmm. just, you know, and if it's not, then you're getting into the category where weight might become an issue. Hmm, interesting. That's something that maybe I, I don't want to do and maybe make me feel badly <laughs> about myself. You would feel fine. I'm going to think about it. So here's another example. A 55-year-old woman with type 2 diabetes, which is, of course, a chronic disease that's often caused by obesity or, or lack of exercise or physical activity in some cases, will pay an average of about $3,500 more per year in medical-related expenses than if she were healthy. Look, there's a lot of genetics in this picture. We know that. We know that there are a lot of health factors that are not within your control. But by making an effort to control the ones that you can control, even if you're very far away from retirement, trying to exercise, trying to eat healthy, not only will it save you money on healthcare costs, but you really increase the odds of living a healthier, longer 
life. And with that, Isabel, I want to shift gears and bring a friend onto the show. I want to introduce you to Jordan Grummet. He is a hospice physician. He goes by the name Doc G. That's what people on his podcast call him. And he's got a new book out called Taking Stock, a hospice doctor's advice on financial independence, building wealth, and living a regret-free life. Doc G, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, I am as well, especially because I started the show talking about physician burnout and and nurses who are experiencing burnout. And I know you've had some experience with that yourself. Can you tell us about it? I certainly did. And and when we talk about burnout, I think it's important, as you were saying, it's not just doctors, it's nurses, it's social workers, it's chaplains, it's physical therapists and occupational therapists, pretty much anyone in the healthcare field. I experienced what I'd call a two-pronged burnout. It started for me when I was in residency on maybe one of the most horrible nights of my life when I was in the ICU or intensive care unit taking care of very sick patients on my own. And I had an elderly man who went into respiratory distress, and I fumbled in taking care of him. We did our best. We had to put him on a ventilator. That's that tube. We put down people's throats to breathe for them. And he eventually, unfortunately, died. His family came in, and I talked to them about everything. They left. And the next morning, I got three phone calls. They were three phone calls from his daughters who were estranged from his new family, and I had to tell them over the phone that he died. Mm-hmm. And the trauma of going through that was the beginning of my burnout. But what really brought it on further over time is this loss of control over my work environment. I felt like I wasn't making a difference. I felt like I spent so much time on administrative tasks. And I so rarely felt like I was helping people, which was exactly what I went into medicine for. And so over the years, I became more and more burned out as I felt like I wasn't making a difference. You know, we as patients are often caught complaining about all the paperwork associated with sending a bill into insurance for reimbursement. We don't really think about it from the other side. But in fact, that's a big deal for doctors and nurses. It certainly is. And it begins in training. They've done studies of residents and found that they spend 70 to 80 percent of their time in front of a computer where we used to spend most of our time in front of patients. And so it's really changed how we practice medicine. Have you seen colleagues leaving medicine because of burnout? Are they retiring? Are they moving to new careers? Are they doing something different or are they just hanging it up? So I found that physicians especially have been bowing out of medicine for the last few decades, and they've been doing it in varied ways. So one is the way I did, which is you get your financial house in order and therefore then can change your life to fit what you want to do or your own lifestyle. And for me, that was cutting back on medicine about 90%. A lot of doctors go into industry, so they leave medicine and work as consultants for companies or for healthcare companies. Um, Some doctors retire early, so you know, people in their 50s and 60s, it used to be most doctors wanted to retire until they couldn't anymore. So you'd see these doctors in their 80s retiring or leaving medicine when they couldn't practice anymore. But now people are retiring in their 50s and 60s. And lastly, something we really don't talk about is there is an epidemic of physician suicide. So unfortunately, some doctors are bowing out by committing physician suicide. And we're seeing a lot of that. And it's probably underreported, but the numbers have been increasing drastically over the last few decades. Oh, that is just horrible. Uh, You found, though, 
a path to a life that has been better for you. And I know it started with a side hustle, which is something that we see many physicians turning to these days, many people turning to these days to supplement their income. But can you talk about that and how you did it, but also how you would suggest other people use it as a step to transition into retirement or into the next phase of life that they want? So I found myself at this place of compassion fatigue. I knew I was very burned out because I wasn't feeling as much empathy and compassion for my patients and realized that I couldn't continue practicing for the rest of my life the way I was in full-time medicine. But I didn't know how to leave either. So the easiest way for me was to say, well, what kind of skill set do I have to maybe start doing some things to make extra money outside of my practice And that would get me to a good financial place so then I'd have more autonomy or control over my schedule and my life. So I started looking for side hustles. And in my case, I looked at medical side hustles. Um, So I became a medical malpractice expert. I already had the knowledge because I was a practicing physician. um, So I could work in that capacity and make some extra money. I started working in nursing homes as a medical director. Another thing I did, which ended up helping me find purpose in medicine, actually get over some of my burnout is I started to work as a medical director for a hospice company. So I'd always been feeling very connected to hospice care because my father died when I was seven. I had volunteered in hospice care as a medical student, and it was something I was doing a lot of hospice care practice because a lot of my patients were elderly and geriatric. So eventually I started working for a hospice company. And so I would attend meetings once or twice a month and I would help them with the care of their patients and I would get paid a separate stipend. So all of these things gave me a little more control or autonomy. And that's what I think we try to do with our finances, especially people who are getting burned out as they look at their finances and they say, well, how can I build some space in my finances so that if I want to pull back in medicine, if I want to do something that's non-medical where I won't make as much money, I'll be safe and I'll be okay. And that was the process that I started. Interestingly enough, it reawakened my love of medicine because I started looking at these side hustles that really felt purposeful for me. And so hospice work felt very purposeful. And in a sense, it really rejuvenated me and helped with that sense of burnout, something that my daily practice wasn't doing. I know that the title of your book is A Hospice Doctor's Advice on, among other things, living a regret-free life. What has being a hospice doctor taught you about that? Well, when you take care of hospice patients, these are people who are terminally ill and have six months or less to live. We not only treat their symptoms like their pain and their nausea. We try to make sure they're in a safe environment and their family and friends are present. But we also talk to them about their lives. And so one of the things that I have gotten to do in my career is talk to hundreds and thousands of patients and family members about what was important to them. And there's a clarity that comes when you're told you only have six months to live. And that clarity brings people to talk about regrets, things they wish they had done differently. And I've been able to sit and listen and interview these people and learn these things. And a lot of the time I found that people regret really not living a life of purpose. In other words, thinking about what was really important to them and then living that life out. And I think this really connects also to the burnout conversation because I wasn't thinking about purpose earlier on in my career. When the problems with burnout came on, I didn't have a lot of reserves. I only found hospice medicine later on after I'd become burnout 
after I wanted to leave medicine, but I often questioned myself and say, well, if I had found more sense of purpose, which I eventually did find in hospice medicine, and if I had started doing that earlier on in my career, I might have had much more career longevity. I might not have burned out in the first place. And it is true in hospice medicine, I probably would have been paid a little bit less. Maybe I wouldn't have done all these side hustles, but I would have been paid enough to live and to be happy and to enjoy my job. And ultimately, the goal of financial independence for me is not having a huge sum of money sitting in the bank account. It's having the freedom and the autonomy to live the kind of life you want to live. And that's, I think, what really is the problem with burnout is Right now, physicians, social workers, nurses, healthcare workers in general aren't feeling that autonomy. Getting to a good financial place is one way to get there, Uh, but it's only one of many ways. The other way to get there is to really start looking at our workplace and saying, how can we really build purpose and autonomy back into the workplace so that we don't have to become burned out? Doc, I've heard your story before you and I have talked many times. Isabel hasn't talked to you before and she's tearing up. Um, Mm -hmm. What's going on? Well, it's, I mean, it's just, I, I, I think about my children and I, and they're little, I have a six-year-old and a 10-year-old and thinking about how do I create that environment for them to grow up looking forward to having a purpose. And I say to them all the time, I don't care what job you have. I don't care what you do with your life, but I want your life to have purpose. And I want you to understand that, you know, what you can do and your purpose can be whatever you want it to be, but you have to have something to drive toward. And, you know, it it makes me a little sad to think that people are, you know, getting to the end and in hospice and still kind of working toward those things and maybe feeling like they didn't get quite there. And so I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, for me, it's something, you know, that, that I, again, I strive toward and I strive to help my children with that too. I think, all of us who are parents, right, who feel responsible for other human beings feel some sense of that. I, I know that I do. And I don't want people listening, Jordan, to think it's too late because even though you wish you had come to find your purpose earlier, you did eventually find it. So what tips, since we're, we're focusing on doctors and nurses today, what tips would you give them and our other listeners for finding your purpose and for finding that financial independence? So first and foremost, it really is never too late. I mean, part of the life review process we do with hospice patients is helping them come to terms with those things things that they couldn't fulfill, that sense of purpose that maybe they never reached. And we do help people find peace at the end of life. So if we can do that with people who have six months or less, think about someone in their 50s or 20s or even in their teens, how much time and space they have to do this. And I'm also very touched by this idea of looking at our children and saying, well, how do we build purpose into their lives? It's really amazing because kids actually... They listen to those whispers. When kids get passionate about an idea, they run full force into it. It's only as we get older that we start giving people boundaries and saying, well, you know, you can't do that for a living or that's what not what normal people do or you've got to be sensible now. So maybe a big thing we do with our children is that we allow them to be kids and don't tell them what they can and can't do, but allow them to kind of listen to those whispers of things they think are important in their lives. As physicians, and I think any adults who are focusing on their life right now, trying to find a sense of purpose and worried about things like burnout, 
Really, I think the key is to set aside their current worries, especially if their current worries are financial, and start looking about what is really meaningful to them right now. Because I think only once we understand what feels meaningful to us, can we then go ahead and build a life around that? So I think the dying have a lot to teach us here because we don't have to be dying to try to put ourselves into that same mindset. So if we can ask ourselves, if I was lying on my deathbed, what would I regret never having the energy, courage, or time to do? That starts giving us a real inkling of what purpose looks like in our life. So with our hospice patients, we do a life review process. And I talk about this in my book, but you can find them online I feel like we should be doing these life review processes much, much earlier, trying to figure out what feels purposeful for us. For me, I would have probably realized at a much earlier age that hospice work, helping the dying was very purposeful for me, especially because of my own experiences with my father. And then we need to take that and build it into our lives now instead of waiting when we're on our deathbeds. And that's not just our job and our motivation. It's also our financial lives. We need to start thinking about how do we build a financial life around this idea of purpose or meaning so that we can start living those lives now instead of waiting till some later date where we're retired. And I guess the last thing I'd say there is people get really anxious when we start talking about purpose. And I often use the term big P purpose, which is that like idea there's this one thing in our lives that we have to pursue and that we are made to do. People get caught up on that, but I think we have a lot of little P purposes and it's fine to start pursuing those things. Like it doesn't have to be the end all be all. The point is we want to start utilizing our time in such a way that we're doing things that have meaning for us. And I think that's one of the best ways really to combat burnout, whether it be in healthcare or anywhere else. I imagine you go through a lot of this with your clients. I, you know, yeah, I was kind of equating that big P purpose with so, sometimes I ask the question, well, I, I, not sometimes, I mean, really every time, right, is what does your retirement look like? What does it mean to you? What is, you know, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And it's a big question. And, and oftentimes people answer it with something that might seem simple on the surface, right? I, I want to travel or I want to spend more time with my grandchildren. But ultimately, right, that is now what is going to be my big P purpose, right? I, I want to experience and the joys of life. I want to travel and eat all the great food in Italy and drink all the good wine. And I want to spend more time with my grandchildren sitting on the ground and playing with toys. You know, whatever that is, you know, that's something that we can build toward. And and it's not as though, you know, you have to learn that from scratch. But I do think that retirement itself and part of what we help people with and getting to that point is kind of having a vision for that and not just one day leaving work and walking out the door and saying, well, what do I do now? But building toward having that sort of you know, more meaningful life and and whatever that purpose is to you, whether or not it's doing all of your hobbies and working on cars in your garage or traveling or playing with grandkids, whatever it is. It's something that we need to think about and we need to build into our lives in order to bring us joy and financial happiness and all of the above, right? Yeah, absolutely. Jordan Grummet, Doc G, thank you for being here. Please come back. Thank you so much for having me and I will anytime. And Isabel, as always, thank you for being here. Thanks for sharing. Thank you, Jane. Thanks for having me. Be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast wherever you stream your favorite podcasts or just visit everydaywealth.com where all of our episodes are available to you. Thanks again, everybody. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. 
If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.